Keith Giles is the best-selling author of Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, and Jesus Unveiled. His brand new book, just released, is Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment, and it may be his most controversial book yet. He's one of the co-hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. He was featured on Messy Spirituality episodes 1, 3, and 19, and I'm thrilled to welcome him back for a messy conversation today. Welcome, my friend, my brother, Keith Giles. Thanks for being here today. Oh, Jason, I love you, man. I'm so honored, so blessed to do this. And honestly, I just love talking to you, whether we're recording it or not. It's just fun to talk to you. So, Well, I feel the exact same way about you. So I am excited to share that with other people because so many times when you and I are in a conversation, whether it's by Facebook Messenger or uh, however we're having that conversation, uh, you say something that I wish other people could hear, but I know I'm not going to remember it the way you said it. <laughs> right. So I have hit the record button today and uh, I'm excited. All right. So like I said earlier, um, I think Jesus Undefeated might be your most controversial book today just because of the subject matter, but I also think it's your best. What made you decide to take on this issue of eternal conscious torment in hell? Well, that is a great question because actually I never, I didn't want to do this actually. Um, It was probably a little over a year ago. Um, I was with Ralph Palindo, who's uh, my publisher. He, he, you know, he runs choir publishing. And this is back when I still lived in Orange County, California. So it's yeah, probably about maybe two years ago. And we were riding in the car together. And he said, Keith, I really think you should write a book, um, you know, talking about hell and, and specifically uh, universal reconciliation or patristic universalism. And at the time, I just said, no, because I got my plans. I got I'd already mapped out the books I was going to write. Um, and I was like, no, no, I just don't think that's my wheelhouse. So I kind of pushed it off. And then about a year later, almost exactly a year later, he, he came back to me and said, Keith, you know, I really still think you should do this. And we talked a little bit more about it. And then I sort of, I said, well, okay, let me just, let me just think about it. if I was going, you know, if I was going to write it, how would I do it? What would I, what would I want to say? And how would I say it? So I just kind of sat down with a pad and a paper and I kind of did a rough outline of, of if I was going to write this book, you know, okay, I'd want to start by talking about this. And then I want to mention that. And then I'd have to go into this and this, I kind of just mapped it all out, like, you know, 12 or 15 sort of steps or sections of the book. And then after I did that and looked at it, I thought, wow, I think I want to write this book. So um, I give all the credit to my publisher, Ralph, for, talking me into it and sticking with it. And, 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 and he keeps, uh, in fact, even just a few minutes before you and I got on this call, he messaged me and told me again that he's never going to let me forget the fact that um, I didn't want to write this book, but you know, I should have listened to him all along. <laughs> he told you so. Yeah. He totally told me so. And I said, well, yeah, that's why you're the boss, man. You know, <laughs> that's right. You never go wrong following Ralph. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming based on past conversations that we had that you grew up with a typical American evangelical mindset relating to the afterlife. Is that true? Oh, heck yeah. I was Southern Baptist all the way, you know. Um, well, that's not true. When I when I first first sort of, you know, we were at church and I kind of heard the gospel. It was a free will Baptist church, which I, I found out later there's a difference. Um, and then, then probably like 10 or so years later, we ended up joining a, a Southern Baptist church. And then that, then that just became our reality. And then I was licensed and ordained Southern Baptist. So yeah, as a Southern Baptist, the only version that's ever given to you is the uh, eternal torment view. And I believed it. I preached it. I taught it. I was in a Christian band. We would go and play schools and 
colleges and do evangelistic things, you know, uh, and concerts and stuff. And either I or one of the other guys in the band would, would preach the gospel of, of, you know, hellfire and damnation. And if raise your hand, if you don't want to burn in hell forever, repeat this prayer after me and all that. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that was what I believed and defended, uh, for a very long time. One of the most manipulative phrases in all of Christianity. Do you know where you'll go five minutes after you die? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what? I even I even had a nuance to it, and I'm I'm sure I picked it up from one of my pastors. But like when I would do those those when I would preach, you know, we would do like a concert with our band. And by the way, it was here in El Paso, Texas, uh, because I I just returned back here. But in El Paso, you know, our band was doing that for like five years, and uh, and I would say things like, you know, um, every human soul is eternal. The only question is where you will spend eternity, and you know. And so you just set up in advance this idea that, but, but you know, it took me a while to figure out later on, there's not a single verse in the Bible that ever says that every human soul is inherently eternal. Like I was, but I was just regurgitating what I had heard, you know, and not question. I just assumed, well, of course it's gotta be in the Bible because, you know, everyone says it, but I didn't until when I started looking for it. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, there's nothing that says that. When did you start to question the commonly accepted doctrines of hell? Um, I, you know, um, see if I can put my finger on it. Um, it was probably, it's fairly recently, probably roughly, uh, maybe five or six years ago. Um, we were in Orange County. Do you remember what that gateway was? I think so. So I think what it was, my first sort of doubt about it, um, there's a guy named Steve Gregg, who's actually a friend and he's a really great guy. He has a radio program called the narrow path and it's a call in radio show. It's kind of like the Bible answer man. People just call him with Bible questions and stuff. And so I used to listen to his show at work sometimes, um, you know, put on my headphones and, and listen to, uh, the call in show. And, um, and he's, he was the first one I think that introduced the idea, which I include in the book. Um, the idea that um, that for the first 500 years of church history, that there were three biblical views, scripturally based views of hell and eternal torment was only one of them. And that the other two were annihilation and universal reconciliation. And that blew my mind. I mean, that was probably the very first time. And then he had, he referenced it and then I, I researched it and looked it up to find the reference. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. And so I, and then, you know, so that was the very first time. Um, and, and again, he's someone that I really respect uh, as a Bible scholar and, and teacher. I mean, I, honestly, I don't think I know anyone who knows the Bible more than, than he does. So when he said that, it was, it really shook me and really caused me to kind of start researching this stuff. How did we as the American church get in this mess of the modern evangelical church where we became so fixated on afterlife affairs that hell became central to our understanding of the gospel. How'd that happen? <laughs> well, um, I think, um, you know, you can sort of trace it again, when I was doing the research for the book and I was, uh, and I, I was reading early church fathers and, and verifying, yep, it's, it's very true that for the first 500 years of church history, um, Many church leaders believed embraced universal reconciliation. Uh, a minority of them, even Augustine admits it. Augustine, you know, uh, pr 
was one of the proponents of the eternal torment view. And, um, but when he wrote about it, he even admitted that he said, indeed, very many, um, you know, at this time uh, in Christendom and Christianity, um, don't believe this. They believe that, uh, that all will be saved. So, um, you know, so, so yeah, there was a time when all three of these views sort of coexisted and, and universalism was the dominant view. But because of Augustine, um, because of then the continuing sort of stranglehold that the Roman Catholic Church began to have on Christianity and defining what is Christianity, um, even, even past the, uh, the Protestant movement, you know, they kind of brought with them some of those same ideas. Um, and many of the Protestant leaders embraced this idea, the same, same ideas that Augustine had promoted about eternal torment. And then, um, and then here's the thing I, that also was very troubling to me. Um, even prior to Augustine, um, you see other early church fathers, John Chrysostom is one of them. And, and, uh, I think Basil is another one, um, who, who openly admit uh, in their earlier writings and, and, and sermons and things like this that we have copies of, that they embraced universalism. Like they really believed in their heart of hearts. If you just got them alone and asked them, hey, well, you know, what do you think about this? They would have said, well, in the end, all will, will be saved. However, they they felt like it was beneficial to preach eternal torment because it, it, it sort of um, – that fear sort of got people to – got Christians to line up and sort of – obey and, and, you know, act like Christians. And so they saw that, unfortunately, um, as a, an expedient way to, um, sort of keep Christians in line and get them to, you know, be faithful and come to church and, uh, you know, do the sacraments and all this kind of stuff. So, um, that's probably in the beginning where I think it started to creep in is that Christian leaders started to see, um, that, wow, it's so much easier uh, to control people if we use this fear-based message. And the sad thing is they're right. It is a lot easier. But the downside, of course, is that we now have the benefit of looking back several thousand years and saying, yeah, you know, maybe that was a bad idea. <laughs> maybe it was we shouldn't have encouraged that. So, Yeah, it kind of feels like what we've done with eschatology. I mean, I know growing up in the church, the rapture was used to mm. keep us in line. And fear is such a strong motivator, but something happens when you're not afraid anymore. And so if you're only doing, uh, if you're only committed out of faith, there will come a time when faith, uh, I'm sorry, out of fear, there'll come a time when fear subsides um, and the commitment wanes. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe we've done the same thing with the afterlife. Yeah. So let me, let me, I want to talk about that a little bit more because this comes up a lot. I, I had a dinner conversation with a friend of mine actually here when we first came back to El Paso. I reconnected with this guy uh, that I really, again, really love this guy, respect him a lot um, from my time here when I was in El Paso. He's a Christian brother. And um, so we were having a dinner conversation and I didn't bring it up. I actually really did not want to talk about this uh, at the dinner table, but somebody else goes, oh, Keith, I see you have a book coming out about hell. And so then we got into this conversation about hell. And my friend, again, who I love and respect so much, he kept going back to that fear thing. You know, you know, about the fear of the Lord is wisdom and all this stuff. And I said, yes, but do you notice every single time either Jesus or uh, one of the messengers of God sent by God appears to men and their first reaction, you're right, is fear. 
But what's the first thing out of the mouth of either Jesus or the angels? Fear not. And, you know, and we have all these verses about how we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of what? Love, uh, you know, and a sound mind and all these things. And, and uh, you know, in, in 1 John, it goes on and on. It's all about love. And it, it points out about how love, um, that, the, that the fear, you know, perfect fear casts, uh, sorry, perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with what? Judgment. And so, it really, the, the dominant message in the New Testament, especially, is that we should not respond to fear. Jesus never appeals to fear. The apostles never preach sermons uh, about the gospel of, or about Christ um, using fear uh, as the motivator. It's always mercy and grace and love and, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, acceptance that we receive in Christ. So it's really, really very sad to me that we have resorted to this sort of, um, we, we have to, we feel like we have to motivate people by fear, whether, like you said, it's the rapture or it's uh, hell. Um, what you end up with again, as we, as we can see now the fruit of it, what you end up with is a Christianity, uh, or a church, uh, that is unfortunately probably a large majority of people who call themselves Christian are only there because, um, they don't want to go to hell. Because that was how they got invited into the club, right? Raise your hand if you don't want to burn in hell forever. Okay, I see that hand. Pray this prayer. Okay, Dean, you're in. So that's why they're here, um, which is sad. Again, like why why do we start our relationship with with Jesus um, based on fear? Like that's that's completely the wrong way to think about it. But unfortunately, that is the way uh, it has been done. That's how we evangelize. That's how we sort of keep people in line. Fear. And which leads to the control and the manipulation and a lot of the very toxic things that you and I know people are deconstructing now. And, uh, and that's, and, and that, that at least is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, you were quoting first John and I think uh, you kind of had a little Freudian flip there, but I think it was actually <laughs> really profound because perfect fear casts out love. No, you're right. It does. And I've certainly found that to be the truth. No, you're right. It, it actually is true. The inversion is true. Um, and, and, be, and because we are now, uh, it's this weird, odd Christianity in America that's more fear-based than love-based. And, and, and even more curious to me is when I talk about love and um, whether I write a blog about it or I do a, you know, an event or, or something or I do a podcast where I talk about love. Christians are the ones who come and push back and go, yes, yes, but I, you know, yeah, God is love, but God is also a God of wrath. And I'm like, I just challenge them. Show me the verse that says God is wrath. There's all kinds of verses about God is love and about the love of God that is higher and wider and longer and deeper, that transcends knowledge, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God and on and on and on. But I don't see any verses or equal amount of verses at all. And certainly not in the New Testament from the mouth of, from the mouth of Jesus, <laughs> um, that, uh, that would, you know, say that God is also this God of, of anger and wrath and uh, like, but we, we seem to really, uh, for something, I guess it's human nature. We just seem to really like that or want that, that God needs to be, for God to be sovereign, um, for God to be holy, he needs to have a reaction to sin that is, that is a, uh, a violent reaction or a, uh, a wrathful reaction to sin. Which is not, which is not actually what we see. What we see is, you know, Paul saying that God was in Christ, um, reconciling the world to Himself and not counting our sins against us. 
Yeah, I think we have this inherent need to try to make God as vindictive as, vindictive as we are. Right. It's really sad. Uh, you referenced the three predominant mindsets about the afterlife in the early church. And I think most people understand what eternal conscious torment is all about. Burning in hell for all eternity. The fire never goes out. Yep. You're there burning, alive, suffering throughout the ages. What's annihilationism? Yeah. And so for a brief time, I was an annihilationist. Um, I kind of, I think I've gone through, I've gone through this spectrum now. Um, so yeah, I first believed eternal torment. And like I said, Steve Gregg kind of blew my mind about these three views. And, and so I, as I was looking at it, I thought, well, annihilation kind of makes sense. So, uh, briefly I embraced that view and that view basically just says, um, and it's based on the realization. Um, and I talk about this in my book as well, that, um, that a lot of the verses that, people that believe eternal torment um, will point to, to to sort of prove eternal torment actually don't have any uh, language that supports eternal torment. Uh, The language is things like, you know, perishing and dying and destruction. Um, So, so actually it's not about being kept alive for eternity and forever and ever and ever being alive to experience torture and pain. That, that language isn't there. The language is, uh, in fact, the only, the only thing you have along those lines about something being uh, uh, eternal are worms, right? The worms are, never die. Uh, and the fire, the fire is never quenched, but, you know, it doesn't say that the people are alive. So, so the language, the language, that's why annihilationists will, will say, look, all these scriptures that seem to be about uh, the afterlife seem to be saying that what's the, the fate of those who die apart from Christ, their fate is destruction and death and perishing. That's the, that's what the wages of sin is death. Um, and so, yeah, annihilationism is just this idea that if you have Christ, you have life. Um, but if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And again, there's a verse that flat out says that. And um, and so if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. Therefore, if you die apart from Christ, uh, your fate is to uh, suffer for a, for a set amount, an appropriate amount of time, sort of equal to whatever your sins may have been. But no one could sin an infinite amount of time, right, worthy of an infinite amount of suffering. And so you would suffer for uh, a just amount of time, and then you would cease to exist. You would just be burned up, and you would you'd be gone. Um, because one of the greatest arguments against eternal, eternal conscious torment is, what could I have done in 80 years right. of, of a typical lifespan that is worth punishing for all eternity? And is God not a God of proportional response? Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. And and I would say, again, I, I, I'm sense, I sense have— have moved away from annihilationism, and I do now embrace the idea of universal reconciliation. However, um, I would say if someone did say to me, hey, Keith, I, I'm an annihilationist, and, and these are the reasons why, and these are the verses I would base it on, you know what? I'm fine with that. I think that's improvement. <laughs> that's better than a belief of that God is an, an, someone who would torture his children for eternity. So even though I don't believe, believe that any longer, uh, I at least see that as that's an improvement. That's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. I can definitely have respect for somebody who says that's the position that I hold. I'm going to respect anybody, no matter what their position is. But, but let me ask you this. Is it possible that annihilationism is a gateway to universal reconciliation? Well, that's kind of where I think I end up. You mean as far as like a belief system, like you kind of, if you believe annihilationism, you, that's going to, it's sort of like a, like a, a gateway drug. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it kind of yeah. seems like that's the step away from eternal yeah. conscious torment. Yeah. Maybe a step in the in the direction of grace and mercy and 
and away from wrath in some yeah. way. Yeah, it just cer- feels yeah. like a lot of annihilationists that I've known over the years end up Christian universalists or ultimate redemptionists or however you want to. Yeah. Say. Well, which, which is what, I mean, I agree with you because, and again, that was my experience, but I think because of that being true, that's probably one of the reasons why people that believe in eternal torment would caution you not <laughs> to doubt their view because it's just going to lead you to this heresy of universal reconciliation, right? You're just going to become a universalist if you're not careful. Um, but I mean, uh, it is, I think it is true. I think once you let go of, uh, the view of eternal torment, and it's not just simply going, you know, I don't want to believe that anymore because I think there's, if you look at the scripture, this is like what I do in, in the book. I take, I take time. Like I take one chapter at a time to like, you know, let's look at eternal torment and what does it teach and what are the scriptures that are, that it's based on? Like, let's take the top, you know, eight to 10 scriptures that, that's, that supposedly support that view. And then I should go through them one at a time and see, is that really what it's saying? And then I do the same thing for annihilationism and the same thing for universal reconciliation. And um, so I think uh, if you do take the time to look hard at the scriptural support for or against these three views, um, yeah, once once you start looking at the scriptures that supposedly talk about eternal torment and you realize, you know, most of these verses aren't even about what happens to anybody after they're dead. It seems to actually be. Uh, and then this is kind of getting into a, maybe a deeper part of the conversation, but but here's here's something that I want people to understand. If you're looking for scriptural support for eternal torment, you will not find it in the Old Testament. It just isn't there. There's no no hint of it. Which I that in itself should make you go, huh? So God's plan from the beginning was to torture people forever, but He spent thousands of years you know, speaking to the prophets and never once brought that up. That's really odd. Um, now, when Jesus shows up, now again, people that believe eternal torment want to say, and I used to say this too, no one speaks more about hell than Jesus in the Bible. Well, okay, but let's look at the this language that, that people are telling us. Uh, well, here's Jesus talking about hell. What you notice is, what you should notice is, um, the, the language Jesus is using, right, when he says things like, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, when he says things like there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when he says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, those are exact quotes from Old Testament passages. But wait a minute. We just said that the Old Testament contains no references at all to an eternal hell, yet they include those same phrases. So what is going on? So in other words, if... If Jesus uses those phrases and he's quoting Old Testament prophets and those Old Testament prophets, when they said those things, were not talking about where anyone goes after they die. What were they talking about? Well, what they were talking about using uh, a device, uh, a literary device called apocalyptic hyperbole was a very poetic, metaphorical way to describe um, a very real, you know, invasion of uh, their enemies, of armies coming to uh, to destroy them to take some of them away captive uh, as slaves. And, and this happened over and over again. This is what they're talking about. When Jeremiah says that, when uh, Isaiah says that, when you know Ezekiel, Daniel use those th- that language, what they're talking about is, hey, the Babylonians are going to come or the Egyptians are going to come. And they're using those sa- that same language uh, to warn them. So when Jesus uses it, he's using it in the same way. He's not trying to say anything about where anyone goes after they die. He's talking about this in, in, in about 40 years' time from when he said it, um, an imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which was coming, which we wanted to warn them about and say, look, 
it, this thing is going to happen if you don't stop and turn around, repent, right? Think differently, do, respond a different way. Um, that's what he's talking about. And so, um, and this is what I try to do in the book is just go through each of those verses one at a time and show how it's connected to those Old Testament prophets. But see, once you see that, then you go, okay, well then, then I guess I don't really have any verses in the New Testament that are about this eternal uh, torment. So what do I have? And I think you're either left with, at that point, either annihilation or uh, universal reconciliation. And I think for me, it's ultimately a question between those two views, because I really think there is no scriptural support uh, for eternal torment. So when you say universal reconciliation, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about all paths lead to God? <clears throat> Thank you for, for asking that question, because that's the probably the first misunderstanding I think people have. Um, in fact, even just the past the past few days, I've had this conversations with some friends of mine. And uh, one of my friends, I was trying to explain this, you know, these three views to him. And he said, oh, so he goes, so universal reconciliation, he said, um, so that's the view that says there's no hell. And I said, no, um, no, that's the, the Christian, the historic Christian view of universal reconciliation, or sometimes it's called uh, patristic universalism because the early church fathers embraced this view. Um, I said, it's quite the opposite. So in other words, you would think that what I mean is, oh, that when you die, you don't go to hell. You don't go to the fire. You don't go through the flames, right? You just go, you know, straight ticket expressway straight to Jesus and, you know, hey, you know, uh, grab, grab a drink, uh, get a hat, you know, let's party. No, <laughs> that's not true. Um, so actually the opposite is true. In fact, it's even more extreme than that. Um, in the, in the, in the universal reconciliation view, it, it says that not only will people that die without Christ pass through the fire, it says that you will, I will, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, everybody will pass through the fire. Christians and non-Christians pass through the fire. That's what universal reconciliation teaches. In other words, it's a Christ-centered um, reconciliation. But it's the idea, and again, this fire is a metaphor. It's, no one's actually going to be thrown into a literal flaming ocean. That's not what's happening. Um, it's simply describing a purification process that all of us will go through. Jesus mentions it when he says that he says everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone. Uh, Paul says it uh, he, when he, he talks about how um, that everyone will basically pass through the fire and uh, that fire it will either reveal, it'll burn away all the impurities and it'll either reveal gold, silver, and precious stones. Um, or he says, but even if everything is burned up and there's nothing good, like there's no no gold, no silver, no precious stones, it, you, it's just completely burned up because there's nothing good in you. He says, and yet that one will still be saved. Um, yeah, but but yeah, he says, yet only as those who pass through the fire. But so, anyways, this is the view of the um, universalist reconciliation view: is that every you know the, the purpose of that is that everyone dies, everyone faces the judgment, and the judgment that 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 takes is this this metaphorical passing through the fire. But the the difference between the three views, whether no matter which of those three views you happen to, to hold. All three views agree that there's some fire judgment involved. The, the, only, the only disagreement between the three views is what is the nature and purpose of that fire and what is the duration of how long will that last. So, uh, you know, eternal torment says, well, the purpose of that is simply torture. 
and it lasts forever. Annihilation says the purpose of the fire is um, judgment, and then the duration is as long as it takes, but eventually it will stop. And the universalist view is it'll take as long as it takes for everyone, you know, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, and the purpose of that fire is, as it says in Hebrews, um, when God disciplines us, he disciplines those he loves. Well, who does he love? Well, for God so loved the world. He loves everyone. So everyone, because God loves everyone, will go through this quote unquote discipline, this judgment, this process. Um, and again, as it says in Hebrews, um, it, you know, when we endure discipline, it, no one, it's never good. It's never enjoyable at the time, right? It's painful. Yet he says that, um, you know, our heavenly father disciplines us for our good to reveal himself in us. That's the purpose of the fire. That's what a, a universal reconciliation uh, believer would say, is that the purpose of that fire is to purify and to burn away everything in us that isn't of God, to reveal uh, the image of God and the breath of God that is in every human being. So how is that different from the Catholic purgatory? You know, that's a great question. And Winnie and I were just talking about that the other day. And I, I mean, obviously, this is where this idea of purgatory comes from. Right. This is where it comes from in the Catholic Church is that, again, the early Christian church, uh, many, many early church fathers taught this and believed this. Um, and yet so it kind of got a, twisted a little bit in the Catholic Church because they still wanted to hold on to this eternal torment view. So what they did was sort of um, modify the universal reconciliation view to say, well, before you actually end up in that final ultimate place of eternal torment, there's this little possibility that, you know, if enough people pray for you or whatever, that you could um, kind of go through this purgatory, which is of a sort of a pre-judgment uh, time, and then you could escape that eternal torment um, of hell. So it's it's a sort of a, an attempt, I think, to uh, almost like a hybrid of the two views um, to sort of say, well, there's a hope. There's a chance, right? Maybe you could you could go to purgatory and uh, and get out. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So a couple of years ago, when I first started stepping back from eternal conscious torment, I was pastoring a church. I began to share what I was experiencing, what I was believing, how my uh, afterlife beliefs were shifting. And one, there was a couple in our church that I love dearly, still love them to this day. But they just couldn't go there with me. Mm-hmm. They they were just resolute. Hell is the gospel. Right. We have to believe this or we're not believing the gospel. We've been so conditioned in the eternal conscious torment that we have trouble separating it from Jesus, from salvation, from the kingdom of God. So I know the accusation towards me at that point, again, love these people to this day, yeah. uh, but they walked away with accusations of you're just trying to sanitize the wrath and judgment in exchange for love. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to an accusation like that? Oh, man. Well, it's hard. I think it's be. I mean, I, I understand why someone feels that way. Again, because I was indoctrinated in that. I, I Again, I, I taught that. I believed that to my core, you know, until someone showed me otherwise. Um, it's so hard, Jason. I think it's one of these things where, uh, I mean, I think it ultimately kind of starts with how, who, who, who is God to you? Like, who is it do you think God is? I think someone like that couple you're talking about, you know, if you were to sit down with them and ask them, describe God. Well, 
you know, I think they would think, well, God, yes, God is love, but there's always the, but he's also a God, he's holy. And, and, um, because of his holiness, he can't be in the presence of sin. And, um, and so because of, so if we die in our sin, then, you know, he has no choice because he just can't be in our presence, you know, uh, because we're so filthy and sinful. Um, but you know, the thing is, show me the verse in the Bible that says that. That's the ironic thing. That's another one of those things that we take. We, I think, you know, we've always taken it, or I always have taken that as a given that, oh, you know, that if, if any, any Christian ever stood up in a pulpit and said, you know, uh, God is too holy to look upon sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. All they would get is a bunch of amens, but no one would notice that you're not throwing a scripture verse up behind you there on the screen to support that because there isn't one. And that's the real shocker. I think like we're, so that, that belief is based on an assumption. It's not based on an actual verse. There are only two real verses in the old Testament that sort of suggest that this whole idea that God is too holy. But if you just keep reading that chapter uh, in both, in both cases, if you just read the entire chapter uh, the conclusion to both in both of those uh, instances, I think one's Hosea and I think one's Isaiah. Um, the conclusion in both instances is that God uh, does look on sin and God isn't separated from us because of our, uh, you know, our sinfulness. So they really right. in one place. I, I believe it actually says, God, you're too holy to look upon sin. So why do you? That's, yeah. Yeah. That's Hosea because the Hosea passages, Hosea is kind of like, uh, that's his whole point. He's like, he's so upset. He's like, God, look, you're you're good, you're holy, you're righteous, you know, you're too holy to look upon sin. So why do you? And, and he's like really frustrated. And that was that's what he's trying to work out. Like he doesn't get it. Um, and we just take that one little part and we stop right there. But it's like, you know, we read the rest of it, and it Hosea is working out that, but obviously you do. And obviously, this doesn't, you know, this isn't something that keeps you from us. And we see the example in Jesus. You know, if Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, if Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, well, what do we see Jesus doing? Running from sinful people, saying, oh, get away from me, you unclean, filthy, you know, worthless sinners? No, he's the friend of sinners. He's criticized by the religious leaders because he's hanging out with sinners, quote unquote, sinners. Um, you know, and he's actually, if he's critical of anybody, he's critical of the the, the righteous and the, the supposedly the holy ones. Um but but here's the thing though, Jason. I'm not sure I'm answering your question because I, I I mean I want to get back to that situation where you know this this couple is, and not, and it's not just them. Again, anyone I think would have that opinion that if you're preaching the gospel without this uh, wrath and judgment, you know that you're not preaching the gospel or something. But again, again, I would just challenge anyone listening to us right now who feels that way. Um, I'm going to just let you know something and you can go check it out for yourself in the book of Acts. This is the beginning of the church, right? So they're filled with the spirit. Pentecost has happened. The The apostles now are going out. They're preaching the good news of the kingdom. Uh, the church is growing. Uh, there's this rapid expansion and growth in the, in the church, right? Uh, we see this in the book of Acts. There's something like 15 evangelistic sermons preached in the book of Acts. Count how many of them include what is supposed to be the gospel of wrath and judgment and fire and damnation and fear. You know how many? Not a single one. So that should make you go, wait a minute. If that message is supposed to be 
what the gospel is all about. You can't preach the gospel without saying that. Then how is it that Paul and Peter and Philip and all these other guys managed to preach the gospel 15 times and never once <laughs> made any reference to this eternal torment? Like it's, it should make you pause and, and say, huh, you know, um, because it isn't. It isn't a part of the gospel. It, that's not the gospel that they preached. How does our afterlife theology affect our everyday lives? I mean, I think one of the most common responses when I've broached this subject with folks is just for them to just say, you know what? You believe what you believe. I'll believe what I believe, and we'll just go on with our lives. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that a belief in eternal conscious torment will manifest itself in a certain type of Christianity. Yep. And a belief in annihilationism may result in a certain type of Christianity yep. and a belief that all of this ultimately is to reconcile us will lead to yet another type of Christianity. How does afterlife theology play into our everyday Christian life? Well, I, first of all, I do think it does. Um, and in fact, I can even just use myself as an example, like I said, cause I've over, you know, a period of about five years, I believed and em embraced all three of these views. Um, and I can just even use myself as an example and see that, um, when I believed eternal conscious torment, um, I had a very, very strong us versus them mentality. You're either in or you're out. You're either a Christian or you are a lost sinner doomed for, you know, eternity in hell. Um, and so I kind of treated, uh, it was easy for me to treat people that way and see people as either, you know, it's this us versus them extreme. Um, when I believed in annihilation, um, I probably still did sort of have this view of, uh, us and them. Um, but, but I, the, the, the major difference I think is in my, was in my view of the nature of God. And I think all three views, um, if whichever view you embrace, you are like it or not, you are, um, you are saying something about who God is. So if you believe in eternal torment, you're, you're saying you believe God is a torturer. If you believe in annihilation, you're saying that God is a destroyer. Um, but if you believe in universalism, you believe God is a loving father who responds to the disease of sin by healing his children, not beating them because they're sick. Um, and you can tell I have a bias in the way I <laughs> the way I frame that, that response, but I do. I mean, I, I, and I've experienced since I now have embraced, uh, the idea of universal reconciliation, what I now experience is I don't treat people as us and them. I, I can meet a Muslim or an atheist, or a Mormon, or anybody, and just see them as a human being, which I couldn't before. You know what I mean? Before, I didn't really see them as a fellow brother or, or a human being. I just saw them uh, as either Christian or, or, or a sinner or a lost person. And now I just can see them as someone that God loves so much, you know? And I can relate to them directly without having this thought in the back of my mind, oh, they're going to burn in hell forever or or something like that. Um because I feel like, well, God, God loves them so much and he's, he's for them and uh, he wants desperately to reveal himself to them. And, and he is, he's, he's determined to do that. He will. He said that he will um, reveal himself to all, all of us. And so I have a lot more, I'm a lot more relaxed around people that don't believe the way I believe. Uh, I'm able to love them, I think, more freely. I'm able to see them as, as, as just fellow human beings. Um you know, not as sinners and or whatever, uh, but as just people kind of like myself. You know, we're we have a lot in common. 
So uh, that's been my experience anyway. Like I, I, I feel like uh, now that I've embraced the view of universal reconciliation, I see God differently and I see people differently. What do you hope your readers are going to get from the book when they, when they finish it, when they put it down, what do you hope will have changed? Yeah. Um, great question. I, I, I guess bottom line. Um, I mean, I guess there's sort of a, there's tears of that. Like my, my ultimate hope would be that they would read the book and be convinced by what I'm saying and say, wow, God is better than I thought he was. You know, <laughs> this universal reconciliation thing really is the gospel. This really is what not only Jesus and Paul and the, and the early church believed, uh, but they're, but Christians for the first 500 years embraced it. The majority of Christians embraced it for the first 500 years. Wow. You know, this really is, uh, the gospel. That'd be my ultimate hope. But I understand that that's not going to be a hundred percent of the people that read my book. And so, um, and I, and I've talked to people who have had this sort of the second reaction, which is to read it and say, wow, Keith, you give me a lot to think about, you know, like, I don't know where I stand anymore. Um, but you've given me enough to, to make me want to know more about this and to study this more. Like you've caused me to, to rethink, uh, my assumptions. And, and I think at bare minimum, that's my hope. Like, I just want to educate people. And this is probably true of all of my books that I've written. You know, I always say that with each of my books, look at the end of the book, even if you don't agree with me on my conclusion, I, I think you will at least understand why I believe what I believe and why, you know, I felt it was important to write this book to at least educate you about some things that I think are that you know, most Christians don't know that I think we should be aware of. So at least, at least if you are going to make up your own mind, you can make up your own mind having all the information in front of you, not just a limited set of information, um, you know, that you've only been given to kind of prevent you from, from being aware of other, other views and other possibilities. Now, I can't imagine anybody who's actually read the book ever saying this, Keith, but how do you respond to somebody who just wants to dismiss you and therefore your book? By saying you're just a deceived universalist, you've fallen away from the faith, you're a false teacher spreading heresy. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, uh, I'll be honest, Jason. I people have responded that way, but uh, but to, but but to be honest, no one who's read the book has responded that way. It's actually the people who have not read the book. So usually, just the fact that I that they are they're aware of the fact that I have written a book about this, and they understand that that is the thesis of the book. Uh, I have definitely gotten that almost verbatim uh, private message or text or, or email from people telling me exactly that, that I'm a false teacher, I'm leading people astray, I should repent, uh, and all these kind of things. But again, uh, and I've offered to send those people free copies of my book to say, look, um, I understand why you're upset. Uh, I used to believe exactly what you believe for the exact same reasons that you believe what you believe. And um I'd be happy to send you a free copy of my book. And after you've read it, I'd love to talk with you about it. Um, but I, so, so that was, that's what I would say to anybody that has that gut reaction, knee jerk reaction. If they're listening right now and that's what they feel, you know, let me know. I'd, I'd be happy to send you a copy of the book and, and let me know what you think. If you're sincerely willing to read it and, and, you know, consider the ideas. Uh, if someone has actually read the book and still concludes that I'm a false teacher or whatever, um, I would want to talk to them, honestly. Like, I, I would just like to have a dialogue with that person and say, well, okay, well, what – did you understand <laughs> what I was saying, though, about how Christians who are so long, uh, in, including people like Gregory of Nazianus and Gregory of Nyssa, who are 
uh, you know, early church fathers who were some of the leaders in helping us come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. You understand, if you're going to say that I'm a false teacher and I'm a heretic, those guys were too. Um, and many other early church fathers were too. Like it, um, you're dismissing a whole lot of Christianity and a whole lot of church history uh, to sort of hold that view. And, and, and I really don't, I guess I'm sort of skeptical uh, and maybe I'm optimistic, but I really don't think anyone could really read through the book because I kind of go through step by step, very methodically, one point at a time for all three views, using church history, using scripture, um, quoting a whole lot of sources. I, I really don't think someone could come to the conclusion that I'm a false teacher or a heretic. I think they would come to the conclusion that I just uh, had a different opinion than them, you know. It just kind of seems like somebody who's living in that kind of bondage is never going to allow themselves to read the book. They would probably think it was dangerous poison yes. uh, that they shouldn't expose themselves to. Yes, exactly. Well, we, you and I have been friends for a long time on Facebook, uh, more years than I, than I remembered uh, when I went back and looked. We've been friends for a, a lot of years. Mm-hmm. I've seen you take so much crap <laughs> on social media. Yes. From so many people, just yeah. the, you know, a blog post that I would think, you know, nobody could have a problem with this. And then somebody blows up and lights their hair on fire. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Does that criticism hurt you? Um, you know what? Oh, I've been blogging for about uh, 12 years and, I, and I've been getting those kinds of reactions ever, you know, from the beginning. <clears throat> so I guess my, I have enough thick skin at this point. That I mean, it still shocks me, like you're saying. It still surprises me because um, sometimes I'll, I'll I'll post something that, like you, I'll just think no one's going to be upset like about this, right? Like I, I posted things like, um, you know, uh, Muslims are beautiful people and dearly loved of God, and like you know, what Christian would disagree with that statement? You know, don't we believe for God so loved the world He gave His only Son? Like, so all I'm saying is that particular group of people including all people, but specifically that group of people as well, you know, are beautiful and loved of God. Oh, Keith, how dare you? Like, and I, and I get those reactions. If I say, if I affirm, like God loves people that are gay. Oh, that's horrible. Like, how is that controversial? So, um, I'm shocked. Like you said, it does shock me. However, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't bring me down. I'll tell you what does bring me down. Uh, like, it, like if it's just some like, Joe Schmo, I don't know this person. They're just some person on Facebook. You know what I mean? Uh, and they get angry, upset. Okay, well, I'm not shocked. Yeah, it happens all the time. What does hurt me um, is when it's someone I know in the real world. Like, you've been to my house, and I've been to your house. Your kids have played with my kids. Uh, I was in your wedding. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Um, and, 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 and usually in those cases, when it's someone I know in the real world, and, and, I, and I'm getting that very public rejection, um, or even if it's private, if they message me privately, cause it happens that way sometimes too, you know, uh, my, my thing is always just to say, call me, let's talk. Uh, because I know if we could talk, if you could hear my voice again, cause you know me, so let's talk, right? If you could hear my voice and I can hear your voice, the conversation is going to go so much better than if it's just this impersonal distance on social media, but invariably that person isn't willing to talk to me. Um, they're, they've already made up their mind. And, and, and so that rejection hurts. And then that that's happened even as recently as like a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, gosh. And you know that, cause I wrote that, that post, right. Do I stand alone? Cause I, I, I went through just like a hammer blow, like one, two, three, you know, it hit me one after the other. And it was like, Oh my gosh. 
but again, only because it's people that I know. And if, if it's, if it's these random people, I don't know, it, I don't take it personally. Well, like I said, I've seen so much backlash against posts that you've made. Uh, I've seen people invite you for debates that seem to be thinking they were laying a trap for you. I've seen people invite you for, you know, a radio interview that that really just looked like a trap so they could call you a false teacher or heretic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I just I just wonder, you know, how much of that can one person take? But I've seen you every single time, Keith, every single time. I've seen you respond to them with grace and love. And even the ones that are laying traps for you, hoping for your destruction, you never call them anything but a brother. Mm -hmm. And I think you are such a fantastic demonstration of the love of God. You are what it looks like. When we truly buy into there is no us versus them, there's only us. Mm. And you treat everybody around you like a brother or sister in Christ, uh, even if they reject you as such. And I just want to say thank you for your example and mm. thank you for your leadership. And I know you would not consider yourself any kind of a leader, but you're a leader by example. Mm. And I'm so grateful for you and your work and just the grace that you operate in every day. Mm. Man, Jason, you didn't tell me you're going to make me cry on a podcast here, but thank you. Uh, that's that's my goal in every episode. <laughs> well, you know, um, I'll say too, it wasn't always like that. Like in the beginning, like I said, 12 years ago when I started blogging and I got backlash, I mean, I would go at it. If you go and read some, I don't do it. But if you go back and read some of those old, you know, I, I, I was given as good as I was getting, you know what I mean? It was a back and forth, but it was horrible, you know, and I always felt slimed afterwards. And um, so eventually I just started. I kind of felt convicted about that. And I realized, you know what, this is my opportunity to do what Jesus said, which is to bless those who curse me. Um, and so to use, so I try, so what I started to shift and try to use that as an opportunity. So when people did out of the clear blue, again, they don't know me, you know what I mean? Like they don't know anything about me. And then they're accusing me of all kinds of crazy things. I, I, in the beginning, I used to say things like, wow, you know, tell me more about myself. I didn't know anything. I, I'm learning so much about myself from someone, you know, who doesn't know me. It was kind of being sarcastic, but, um, right. but, um, but no, but, the, but, you know, also it really helped me uh, as well. The more I, the more, what I noticed was the more that I could respond in love and grace to those people, it didn't always sometimes, but you know, not always it, would it change that person's tone. Sometimes they just double down and get more angry. But you know what it did change? And this was this is what really convinced me that I needed to do more of that. Because I would get private messages from other people who say, Keith, I was reading that. And now some of these people, by the way, who, told, who, would, who would message me privately and would say, wow, Keith, I saw the way that guy was treating you today on Facebook. And I saw the way you responded to him. And it really, you know, that really blessed me. Some, some of these people were friends of mine that weren't Christians. And it was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, like people are watching, people are paying attention. And, and, and if they hadn't told me, I wouldn't, I, I, you know what I mean? You're, I'm always so focused on what's right in front of me. I, I, I think I'm only having a conversation with that particular person, but it's social media, which means hundreds or thousands of people are watching the way I respond to that person. And so then once I realized, oh, wow, it really matters how I respond to that person right now. Um, not just even for their sake, but for the sake of the gospel. And then, and, and like you're saying, you know, sort of a witness for Christ, like, um, yeah, I, I really need to go, I need to dig deeper <laughs> and try to find a way to respond with grace in this situation. Cause I think it, it, it does have a much longer term impact on people, you know, than even winning the argument. Right. Absolutely. Now, Keith, I know we're running out of time. Um, would you read us a passage from your book before we go? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, so I was uh, trying to think, like, what would be something good? Um, what, something that comes up all the time um, when you talk about universal reconciliation is, so is this question, you know, if the doctrine of eternal torment isn't true, then why preach the gospel at all? So uh, in my book, I sort of take time to respond to that. I'm just going to read this little part here uh, from the book about that in answer to that question. Honestly, this question really disturbs me. I think it's because it makes me wonder if the Christians who ask me this question are only Christians because they don't want to burn in hell for eternity. Perhaps if eternal suffering wasn't true, they might reconsider their decision to become a Christian in the first place. Of course, this is because we evangelize with fear. Thousands, perhaps millions of Christians today are in the fold simply because they were told that repeating a prayer of repentance would help them escape the fires of hell. They're only here because they're afraid of that torture. So they bowed their heads and raised their hands or walked the aisle and got on their knees or, or, and did whatever they had to do to avoid that awful, horrific, endless torture in the lake of fire. So when someone like me starts to suggest that there are two other Christian doctrines about the afterlife and neither one involves an eternity in the fires of hell, people start to get angry and confused. They want to know if hell isn't forever, then why preach the gospel? What's the point? My response to those who ask me this question is pretty simple. If knowing Christ doesn't make your heart sing, and if your daily walk with Jesus isn't a reward enough, then I'm not sure I can explain it to you. Without Jesus, there is no life. Without Jesus, there is no love or peace or joy. Why evangelize others if God doesn't plan to torture people forever in the lake of fire? Because Jesus is the best thing about being alive. And there's nothing in the world more amazing than knowing him. This question reveals that many Christians who ask it really haven't fully experienced the beauty of being in communion with the creator of the universe. If hell does not exist, then why bother being a Christian? I like how Brad Jerzak answers that question. Quote, if your only reason for being a Christian is to avoid hell, I wonder if you have ever encountered the love of our precious Savior. Have you met him? We follow Jesus because he loves us and we love him. We give ourselves to Jesus because he is Lord, because he purchased us with his own blood, and because our salvation is his reward as much as it is ours. If our only reason for being a Christian is to avoid hell, we may be there already. Close quote. Why evangelize if hell isn't forever? Because his love is better than life. Because in his presence are joys everlasting. Because he has the words of life because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, because he loved us so much that he gave up his life for us, because we love him, because we want to bring him joy when we help another one of his children learn to love him as much as we do. How many more reasons do we really need? Besides, the gospel was never really about saying a prayer so we could go to heaven or escape hell when we die. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. It's not the gospel that the apostles ever preached. I'll admit it. It was the gospel that I was raised hearing as a child. It was the gospel I was trained to believe and to preach to others. It wasn't until I was already a licensed and ordained minister of the gospel who had served for years in various Christian churches and denominations that I finally realized what the actual gospel of Jesus really was. And I've never been the same since. And so anyway, that's the end of that chapter. And then the next chapter I explained, uh, the gospel message of Jesus. So, yeah.
Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Friends, the book is Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. As I've said earlier, I believe it's Keith Giles' best book today. You need to read this book. We all know somebody who's struggling with what they believe about hell or what's going to happen when we die. This book is a gift that they will remember for a lifetime. So pick up a copy for yourself and for somebody else we'll have. Uh, link in the show notes for you to get a copy of this book on either Kindle or paperback. Um, Keith, you are the most prolific writer on the planet, I think. What's next for you? What are you working on right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, if all goes well as planned, yeah, I'm working on a book right now um, that's that's going along with or coming out of this uh, deconstruction to reconstruction 90-day program I'm doing at the moment with 15 people, um, and that's called Square One. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book based on that, which hopefully will help people um, going through deconstruction and, and move on to reconstruction. That My goal is to have that book out by March. Um, then uh, the book after that, July 4th, will be a follow-up book to uh, Jesus Untangled. And awesome. I, I'm not sure about the title on that yet. Um, then in November, a year from now, um, I'm going to publish a book about the end times, uh, dispensationalism and, you know, second coming and all that. Uh, that's my plan. Well, I'm looking forward to all that. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about all of them. Oh man. Yeah. I'm, you just let me know. I'll, I'll be here. Awesome. Friends, we have links to all of Keith's books in the show notes, as well as links to Keith's blog, the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, Back to Square One, and much more. Please do me a favor and check out Keith's Patreon page. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Keith gives his patrons so much amazing content on Patreon, including recent interviews with the naked pastor, David Hayward, Jim Palmer, and more. Check that out. Sign up as a patron and support Keith and his work. Keith, brother, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this. Love you too, Jason. God bless, man. Thanks.